Hello, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Christopher Mays to discuss his paper, Co-Producing Bioethics, How Biomedical Scientists and Applied Philosophers Establish Bioethics in Australia. And this paper has recently been published in the journal Social History of Medicine. Hi, Chris. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. No, thanks for having me. It's uh, exciting to be on the other side of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we should put a little plug for your podcast yeah, at the end sure. of, the, of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, to get us started off, could you give the listeners a bit of a summary of this paper and what it's about? Sure. Um, I guess on just the you know, straight up uh, kind of uh, summary would be that it is uh, a paper about the emergence of bioethics in Australian universities um, in the 1980s. Uh, So looking at the establishment of the first bioethics centre, the Monash um, Centre for Human Bioethics, as it was called initially. Um, And I do that through drawing on some interviews that I did, oral history interviews with uh, some of the early figures involved in establishing that centre, as well as archival materials uh, made available through Monash um, University, as well as stuff that I found in Peter Singer's archives in the National Library um, about exchanges between him and others about how to get the centre established. So I guess, you know, that's it's essentially telling that story um, with a few... Uh, I guess, theoretical flourishes here and there. Yeah, that's super interesting. And what got you interested in this question of the history of bioethics in Australia? Um, I guess, well, it, it, it came out of my um, DECRA research. Uh, and so um, that project, which I received funding for back in 2017, um, the thing that motivated me to put in that project and to, to explore the history of bioethics in Australia was the way that um, uh, so much of the bioethics history that has been written is has a very sort of assumed American focus or an explicit American focus. So there are some that will be, you know, the history of American bioethics with that sort of national prefix but or qualification, but most of the histories just were like, this is the history of bioethics and it's all about America. And I remember also just teaching undergraduate bioethics and, you know, we'd teach about things like the the case of Roe v. Wade, obviously quite um, uh, topical now. Very much. Uh, but, and it was always, I don't know, I remember sort of getting responses back or students saying, oh, what would happen if Roe v. Wade got overturned um, in Australia? And there was this kind of assumption that it was kind of an Australian law um, maybe that's an indicator of how poorly I was teaching these students. <laughs> but just so many of our examples in sort of the early, in like undergraduate bioethics curricula, you know, Karen Ann Quinlan, all of these things, very important. I'm not sort of wanting to dismiss them, but they're all very American focused. Um, I mean, I'd be interested in your perspective on, on those sorts of historical questions, especially as someone um, who is from uh, Canada. I'm right in that, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whether you sort of have experienced a similar sort of US dominance of this sort of bioethics narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that I have actually. And that I don't know the history of bioethics in Canada. I think that it's actually quite an interesting question. I think that um, 
the question of Roe v. Wade is a really interesting one because it had such an impact. And I was saying this recently about how, like, I'm interested to see what this will do um, now that it's potentially, it is going to be repealed, it seems. So what's that going to do in Australia and what's that going to do in Canada? In Canada, there is no law. There's an absence of law around abortion, which is quite good. It means that um, it's just sort of an in-practice policy and governments have been hesitant to put any law in place. But I think that that similar confusion prevails, like that, not that Roe v. Wade is a Canadian law, but that somehow there is a law, that Mm. it's somehow connected or reflective of this thing, that there's something that um, could be undermined or toppled. But Mm. yeah, I think- And potential, I guess, for people to go from the US to Canada to seek those Mm. treatments could be an eventual you know, what happens for some states, at least. Absolutely. And I believe Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said something encouraging Americans Mm -hmm. to do just that, which is confusing because it's not obvious that it's that easy to do that, you know, with health insurance. And it is an international (laughs) move. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so that's some of the motivations, just that sort of um, the the way. And, And that, yeah, as far as I could tell and and so far have been proven right that that hasn't really been written that Australian um, history. Mm -hmm. The other prominent history that I hear about the origin of bioethics is that it comes about as a result of the Nuremberg trials. And Mm -hmm. is that, do you think more of like the British slash European story? Yeah. I mean, that's certainly um, a massive uh, event um, in the history of bioethics broadly. I think what's interesting uh, in Australia is that that was, like a lot of things in Australia, there's a sense that these bad things happen somewhere else. They don't happen here. Uh, And so looking at, say, the archives of the Medical Journal of Australia and and sort of letters and, and any kind of discussion of the Nazi experiments or the Nuremberg trials in Australia, that was always seen as... um, stuff that happens elsewhere. So it, was, it was, wasn't seen as something that really caused much reflection um, or action in the Australian medical community. I think more broadly, um, it certainly was one of the contributing factors um, to the development of uh, med- medical ethics and then bioethics. And then after that, the, the Helsinki Declaration um, in the... Uh, don't have my dates. Never start sort of trying to pretend that you're so <laughs> <laughs> it was in the 60, 1960s, something or other. But yeah, that, that also sort of shaped um, the emergence of bioethics um, in the US. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in this particular paper, what um, are the kind of main argumentative points? Yeah, I suppose one of the... Um, the contributions aside from just, you know, it, yeah, I'm certainly not just wanting to do a, um, you know, repeat, here's the American history, here's the Australian history. I think there are distinctive and interesting things um, and, and and similarities as well between, say, the Anglosphere approaches. I mean, there's a whole other question around European and um, different Asian um, uh, approaches to bioethics, but uh, in Australia, I think the main the main takeaway, I guess, <clears throat> was that um, you know I, I myself was attracted to some of these sociology critiques of bioethics as 
you know, bioethics has been, you know, <clears throat> the handmaiden to, to medicine and, and just rubber stamping these, um, you know, medical experiments and, and just trying to make um, novel biotechnologies um, palatable to populations, that sort of stuff, you know, people like, I guess, in some ways, uh, Nicholas Rose and, and, and the historian Roger Cooter have <clears throat> made some of those accusations against bioethics. In Australia, and I think what was interesting in looking at the archives um, of how, and, so, and by the archives, I mean a lot of internal letters um, around the establishment of the Monash Bioethics Centre, and that it was generated by scientists. Um, you know, uh, a guy, um, uh, John Swan, who was the Dean of um, Science at Monash University, and then uh, Professor William Walters, who was in medicine and in obstetrics, they came together and saw the need for an ethics centre. And so then they approached Peter Singer, who had just come to Monash from La Trobe University, and asked him, would he be interested in sort of helping establish this bioethics centre? So I think one of the interesting things of looking at this, this was 1979 um, and then into 1980, was that firstly it was driven by the scientists and, and the medical side of things, initially at least, and that it was out of a genuine concern of not knowing how, you know, that William Walters was involved in, um, in the IVF program at uh, Monash University. And there was, and he had a lot of questions and had himself given some papers at various seminars, sort of raising these ethical questions around IVF and the development of it before even the birth of the first um, <clears throat> child through IVF. And so I think that was interesting in that it did, and this is, I guess, when I talk about co-production and using that um, science and technology studies concept to see that bioethics was sort of co-produced through applied philosophers like Peter Singer, philosophers who were wanting to get out of the, um, the office, so to speak, and into, quote unquote, the real world. And that together they sort of um, established this, this centre that uh, was not, I guess, as um, linear as some of the critiques that people make, oh, bioethics just has come, rides on the coattails of, um, you know, medical science progress and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it was interesting to read that it seemed like there was a real desire from the medical researchers and scientists to engage in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I found that, uh, that to be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and William Walters is an interesting figure as well, because he then, after Monash, I don't talk about this in the paper, but then he went to the University of Newcastle and established or, or helped establish they had quite a um, uh, cutting edge, for the want of a better word, um, <clears throat> bioethics component to their medical education in the uh, early 90s. And he was mm. instrumental in getting that through. Um, so I'm curious about the sort of broader um, project are you are you presenting this project in order to understand bioethics in Australia better to help it develop itself in some particular way or is it kind of like purely historical to find out where it came from and to to establish how it's different in a way from bioethics elsewhere or is there a sort of forward looking component that you hope to influence mm. Um, it's, there's certainly a, a, a forward or present 
focus to it. I think in, in sort of my approach to history, seeing that um, these understanding sort of how an institution or set of practices or ideas um, rose in prominence, I think helps us to understand how they're used and um, practiced today. Uh, so yeah, there's certainly a um, present day purpose for this. Um, I wouldn't say I'm entirely clear what that is at the moment, but I think one, one, thing, to, one thing that I do think about is, you know, that things could have been otherwise. Um, so that uh, that's not necessarily to say that everything's, um, you know, bad as it is now, but more to sort of just think about the contingencies along the way um, that things, that the way bioethics developed itself could have been different um, and that things in the present are also um, contingent on those differences and also to understand some of those um, current day debates. So, um, uh, yeah, why not? I'll just jump straight into sort of like this fascination with eugenics among um, primarily uh, Monash slash Victorian based um, bioethicists and that there is a long history to the eugenics movement in Victoria uh, and as a state. And, and that's something else that I'm interested in is um, state differences. And I think we've seen that play out in the, the way different states have responded um, to the pandemic. And I think that's based on different sort of cultures of public health, but also I think different ethical cultures about what a state um, desires um, and what citizens expect. So in some ways, I don't, you know, for your listeners who are beyond Australia, I think, you know, constitutional politics, I don't get into that uh, or won't be getting into that so much. But I think just the way different states are set up and the way that the state does have control over the health system um, has meant that there are different state difference. There are state differences in, I think, um, the way bioethics developed as well. And then you also see that in um, or I've seen that in different uh, dioceses in terms of um, Anglicans and Catholics. Uh, so it's not something I, I only allude to in the paper, but, you know, in terms of future, um, a book that I'll publish will have a lot more of the emphasis on religious and feminist perspectives on that uh, the early period. And with, mm -hmm. um, say, the Catholic Church, for instance, there was a very... Um, aggressive, depending on your perspective, um, or very vocal and uh, well-organised um, Catholic bioethics representation in Victoria. Um, and in Brisbane, there was also a very strong bioethics Catholic community, but they have a very different approach and um, style, if you like, to bioethics, much less hostile um, in the, the Brisbane group, whereas a lot more polemic down in Victoria between Peter Singer primarily and the Monash Bioethics Centre and then the um, St Vincent's Bioethics Centre with Nick Tonti Filippini and Kevin Andrews and others. Very interesting. I think it seems from the paper like um, Peter Singer's presence in Australia was like a major contributor to the development mm. of, of bioethics by specifically that bioethics center that you're talking about at Monash, but maybe bioethics as a field here as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's another one of those sort of like alternate histories to, to consider. <laughs> I mean, bioethics would have developed in some way if he had never returned to Australia. So he did his studies at Oxford, then he had a brief position at um, 
Cooney in New York, and then he got a position at La Trobe and then moved um, <clears throat> to Monash. And, and it was really only in his move to Monash. So La Trobe didn't have a medical um, research program. It doesn't, didn't have a medical school. I don't think it's got a medical school now. So he wasn't really, apart from some stuff that he had written with um, Helga, I think he had written with Helga. Maybe he hadn't even written with Helga. No, he wouldn't have written with Helga at this stage, but he didn't really have much in the way of medical ethics until he came to Monash. And then, yes, he was quite a prominent figure, um, but there were others as well. So Max Charlesworth um, was also getting involved in this area um, independently of Peter Singer's influence. And then the Queensland Bioethics Centre, which was a Catholic bioethics centre, was also in development independent of uh, the influence of Monash. So I think that bioethics would have developed, but um, probably not to the same prominence. And then I think in Melbourne it was interesting because there were these sort of two very strong forces in the Catholic Bioethics Centre at St. Um, St Vincent's and then the Monash Bioethics Centre, and they would often have quite public debates. So there were these quite hostile forces in um, Melbourne um, or polemic forces between uh, the Catholics at the St Vincent's Bioethics Centre um, and Monash, which I think, again, sort of gave this... Um, sense of urgency and importance of these debates. And, and when I say hostile, I mean, there certainly was hostilities and, and some, you know, uh, not nice activity, I guess. But uh, it's all, all, another interesting thing in the study is the way that Nick Tonti Filippini um, was Peter Singer's student. So there was, they had cordial relationships um, and and it's in, it's been interesting the way, I guess, coming into this project, I kind of was aware of these sort of polemics between Nick and these other groups, but um, it's been interesting in interviewing some of the people who were involved in those debates, how highly they've kind of regarded Nick Dante Filippini as a person. He has since passed away, so I wasn't able to interview him, but um, yeah, it's again a different kind of culture i think to what we have today um in there aren't those at least now in australia um those same kinds of um debates uh or even the prominence given to them there's occasional flare-ups i would say but not in the same sort of sustained way yeah yeah that seems interesting and it seemed like a very fertile time mm. fertile discussions and rich yeah. Yeah, rich conversations that were happening. Um, and I think, you know, this kind of, I think, goes to the your initial question or your point about teaching people and about um, Roe v. Wade and the kind of American story and stuff like that. I confess that I didn't know until moving to Australia in 2019 that Peter Singer was Australian. Mm. I always thought he was American. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. And um, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh... I'm not, a, I'm not a very nationalistic person, so I find it funny being in this position of, of sort of working on this research area and getting, I guess, irritated when uh, Peter Singer or others are referred to, or these developments are not referred to in their Australian context. They're just sort of assumed to be American or something. So prominently, uh, for me, an example of that is um, in Renee. Fox's and Judith Swayze's Observing Bioethics, which is a quite a sort of 
prominent book in this area, um, they talk about the founding of the International Association of Bioethics and basically say Dan Winkler did it. And then um, and then I think they say Peter Singer was involved a little bit, which is just um, completely washing away any kind of um, international involvement in the establishment of the International Association of Bioethics. They sort of present it as this primarily American initiative, whereas, um, you know, it was housed at the Monash uh, Bioethics Centre. Um, but anyway, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm not interested in this for nationalistic reasons, <laughs> more just for uh, accuracy of the story, I guess. Fair enough. I, I think that's actually important because otherwise um, we do lose the meaning of the international, that word international. And mm. yeah, it starts to be like the world series of baseball. That's true. Um, <laughs> so I guess we're kind of actually coming to our time here. It's been so interesting to talk with you about this. And I have a, I have a sense of what maybe some of the um, primary takeaway messages are that you'd hope people would um, glean from the paper, but do you have any in particular that you'd like to sort of mention that you hope people will come away with? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, I guess that they would come away from reading the paper that um, a number of the narratives that we have about bioethics, uh, and especially among bioethicists, I guess the stories that we tell ourselves um, are more complicated uh, and more complex. So I guess one prominent story being that it originated in the US and then just spread out and was replicated in other locations. Um, Alistair Campbell talked about sort of, you know, it's just like Coca-Cola being exported. But instead, I guess one takeaway message would be to see the way that a, a culture shapes um, the ethical um, responses to medicine as culture shapes medicine as well. Um, and I guess the other takeaway would be um, around, I guess, some of the critical st- stories around bioethics of what I talk in the paper about being a sort of reductive thesis that, you know, we can just reduce bioethics to some kind of commercial exchange or some kind of prestige exchange with medicine. And it's this relationship of convenience. And that while there may be some evidence for that at different times, um, in the late 70s and early 80s, it was not so um, straightforward. Very interesting. No worries. Thanks so much for talking with me, Chris. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. It's, uh, yeah, no good. problem. And anyone who's interested will be able to find Chris's paper linked in this episode's show notes, along with a transcript of our discussion. Great. And send me an email if you want access to the paper and you don't have it. Yeah, there you go. I'll um, provide your email address in the show notes as well, Chris. If that's Excellent. All right. Cool. Great. And listeners, if they'd like to, can check out Chris's podcast, which is called Undisciplinary. And it's available on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere? Yeah, I think it's sort of through most good podcasting uh, All the podcast platforms, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. SheePod is hosted by me, Catherine McKay, and produced by Madeline Goldberger. You can find the other episodes of SheePod on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.